So in Luke eleven thirteen, Luke zeroes in on a particular aspect. Matthew says, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Luke zeroes in on a particular good gift, the gift of God's own presence, the gift of God himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Acts chapter one, they're praying. The spirit is poured out in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter four, they're, they're praying for continued boldness and that God will continue to bear witness with signs and wonders. And it says in, in 431, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Mm. And then, you know, sometimes elsewhere in Acts, we see this connection between prayer and the, the gift of the spirit. It's not like that's the only way that happens, but I know your, your, your church tradition and in many, many church traditions started with outpourings of the spirit with, with you know, people wanting to go back, be serious with the word, see what the word says, mm. but also revival, you know, the, we, we, we tend to call it revival, but these outpourings of the spirit in the book of Acts are, I think God often does those things mm. and starts movements. We, we see that today in many, many places around the world in groundbreaking evangelism and, and so forth. But so I think that that tells us something that we can do to seek God for that, both personally and corporately. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with a friend, academic mentor, and my dissertation advisor, Dr. Craig Keener, the FM and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. It's no exaggeration to say Dr. Keener is a world-renowned scholar focusing broadly in New Testament studies with special emphases in New Testament backgrounds, the Book of Acts, Jesus as a historical figure, and both modern and ancient miracle accounts as it pertains to Christianity. In addition to his academic work, he's also written extensively on biblical topics for popular-level audiences and has co-written with his wife, Maydean, something of a spiritual autobiography entitled Impossible Love. Now, given Dr. Keener's expertise in ancient historiography in general, and the book of Acts in particular, I wanted to walk through this book with him to see what are the major themes in Acts, and what does Acts offer that maybe the other books in the New Testament might not. I had a wonderful time catching up with Craig, and I hope you come away with not just a greater appreciation for the book of Acts, but I hope you also come away encouraged to do your part in fulfilling the church's mission in Acts to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us and maybe share us with someone that you think might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Dr. Keener, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the podcast. I'm really excited about being able to talk with you about the book of Acts here in just a few minutes. Um, First off, let me ask you, uh, how is it up in Wilmore these days? Are, are, are you about to start teaching? Have you started the semester yet? Kind of what are, what are you up to these days? Right now, I am furiously finishing up um, the rough draft of chapter six in, in Mark. 
I'm doing okay. a commentary on Mark right now. Oh, okay. It will take a few more years to finish because the rough draft is very rough. <laughs> but, Fair enough. Uh, but at least I'm making progress. So yeah. I wanted to get as far as I could, at least through the end of chapter six before the semester starts and probably we'll finish it tonight. Okay, great. All right. Well, so, um, and and still able to take time to uh, talk to us about the book of Acts. Thank you very much. I, I was taking time to talk to you. I'm just joking. <laughs> Dr. Keener, I have, um, since I started my uh, my theological education back in, or at least my, my seminary education back in 2010, your name has been a name that has, uh, that I have always, always heard and, um, you know, senior books on our library there um, when I was in seminary in Memphis. How long have you been teaching? And uh, let me ask uh, for folks who might not know you uh, or might not be as familiar with your work, what kinds of things do you normally find yourself teaching? <clears throat> sure. Uh, well, it depends on what you count as when I started teaching, but when I started teaching full-time and actually getting paid for it, <laughs> that would be in 1996 uh, at a seminary in North Carolina and then another seminary in Philadelphia for 15 years and then since 2011 at Asbury where one of my brilliant doctoral students actually mentioned in a book coming out in October is one of my quote brilliant doctoral students was Kevin Burr. Oh <laughs> what well, I I've I've been graced enough to be mentioned in one of your books that came out a couple of years ago, Christobiography. Uh, what is this other one that's coming out? This one is called Miracles Today. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the, my first Miracles book was intensely scholarly, 1100 pages. Two uh, volumes, yeah. Yeah, arguing for, because <clears throat> people say, ah, you know, the stuff in the New Testament, we can't really trust these documents because it, if they were really trustworthy, I mean, they wouldn't talk about miracles. You know, mm. one, one third of Mark's gospel talks about healings, exorcisms, nature miracles. Mm -hmm. One fifth of the book of Acts talks about it. So we can't trust these things because they talk about miracles. And so um, when I was working on my big Acts commentary behind you there. Uh, the, for those who are watching, it's, uh, these, uh, these dark colored books behind me. Yeah, the, the, the blue ones, the mm -hmm. four, four volumes. The, that one was, um, but, but I have a one volume, one with Cambridge, but that's, that's shorter and more readable. But I, need, I needed to do the Miracles book just to be able to deal with that. And so it came out to 1,100 pages. Mm -hmm. But this Miracles Today book will be uh, less than 300 pages. So okay. it's, a, it's more readable and... Uh, it's actually an improvement over the last one. It has a lot of new material, but much more accessible. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and not to give anything away, uh, not to give too much away, but am, am I in there for the for the story that I mentioned in the class that one time? Yeah, the Harding. Wow. Uh, you, you and your and your colleagues coming back from that conference. That, that's right. That's right. That was. Um, <clears throat> That was uh, multiple and independent attestation of uh, certain key facts that uh, yes. of that story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm not going to tell you anymore. Uh, <laughs> check out Dr. Keener's book, Miracles. Uh, is it Miracles for Today? Uh, Miracles Today. Miracles Today, coming out in October. Who's publishing that? 
That's Baker Academic. All right, good. I like those guys. I like those guys. Okay, so you've uh, you've mentioned um, you know teaching at Asbury, and uh, let me ask, what kinds of things? I mean, obviously New Testament. What kinds of things do you normally find yourself teaching? And could I even ask maybe a, a, the inside scoop? What's one of your favorite things to teach? <laughs> um, I teach historical Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of your dissertation project was related to that, that class. Yeah. Um, I teach Acts. That's, that's one of my favorite. And, mm-hmm. uh, last semester, I taught Mark. That was, that's probably my favorite at the moment, just because I'm so into Mark at the okay, moment. Yeah. And then uh, I teach Matthew and Revelation. I really love teaching Revelation, but I, <laughs> I'm so far behind in the secondary, secondary literature. You know, there's so much published that, right. you know, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, step, you, you, you step into another project and, and then, you know, you come up for air from the other project and, you know, 50 more monographs have been written <laughs> on, on the last thing. And yeah. Hard to keep up with, so, mm-hmm. yeah, stuff like that. And I, and I teach, um, those are at the doctoral level. And then at the master's level, I teach New Testament introduction and sometimes something like Romans, hopefully revelation in the future. That yeah. should, I think that's always fun at the master's level because you can <laughs> uh, first, first week assignment, next week bring all the crazy things you can find in the internet. Just get it out of your system and then we can get down to business with exegesis. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I'll keep that in mind next time. Uh, next time I teach Revelation in a, <laughs> in a school setting or even a congregational setting. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to take you for um, almost all of those doctoral seminars that you mentioned, with the exception of Mark. Took you for historical Jesus, like you mentioned, out of which came my doctoral project. Took you for Revelation. Took you for Acts, and took you for Matthew. Um, I and Matthew was was one of my first classes that I took that wasn't, you know, the required classes of first year doctoral students. So like the, you know, Old Testament method, research methods and New Testament research methods and, you know, history of interpretation. Those are all classes you have to take at Asbury as first year PhD student, at least uh, back when I started. But I, I, I wanted to take you for Matthew, mainly because Matthew is my favorite gospel and I wanted to take you for a class. So you have a double whammy there and, and loved it. What a treat. And half the guys in the class, I ended up either becoming best friends with in my program or graduated with. Um, it was it was a really a lot of fun. And I, I really enjoyed that class. So. I'm, I'm supposed to teach Matthew this semester. I don't I don't have very many students this time. A lot of other good seminars being offered. So, mm. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Maybe word has gotten out about how. Uh, how brutal and exacting you are. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You mentioned Acts, and uh, obviously, uh, again, for those who, uh, who were able to see behind me, um, Dr. Keener has, uh, is it fair to say that you know, people were already, at the risk of some degree of self-aggrandizement, people were already getting to know you because of your scholarship, because you had written a number of, uh, of uh, critically well-received or at least critically engaging uh, materials, a, a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of John that was very well received, uh, a, a, a robust commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, and then um, you know everyone, you know, a lot of folks in kind of the biblical studies world were excited when you started turning out 
volume after volume on Acts. Is it fair to say that Acts, that your commentary series, on the, your four commentaries on Acts was something where a lot of folks really began to notice, you know, oh, okay, this, this guy, Craig Keener, this is somebody that I really need to pay attention to. Uh, it's hard to say mm-hmm. when and if people pay attention to me. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. But, uh, but, but some people, yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember the main librarian at, um, at my seminary in Memphis. He, he loved going around showing everybody volume one because that's what had just come out. It's like, look at what it covers. The introduction and chapters one and two. <laughs> thousand pages. He got, he got a big kick out of that. Uh, yeah. But that was part of my introduction to you. And another reason why it just made sense for us to be able to talk about Acts together. Um, one of the things that I think is extraordinarily helpful in understanding any book of the Bible Old Testament, New Testament, or even books outside the Bible that are still relevant for, for Christians to know. On Sunday evenings, uh, you, you might appreciate this. On Sunday evenings uh, here at church, I've been teaching a class uh, online through Zoom and, and Facebook and YouTube called Early Christians Speak, and we've been going through some material from the Apostolic Fathers, which has been a lot of fun. We just wrapped up First Clement tonight. We did Didache uh, a couple of months ago. And I'm 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 thinking maybe Shepherd of Hermas for uh, just just for something weird, yeah, weird. <laughs> just, just for weird. something weird. To, uh, right. Well, and one of the things I would like to being able to show was how um, how in, in the second century there we do see Christians you know wrestling with Scripture. We see them uh, finding faithful ways to adopt and adapt Old and New Testament texts. That's that's been a lot of fun. But one of the things that I have to do. And in a class like that or any class that I manage to teach uh, here at church or anywhere else is talk about what kind of book we're dealing with. Are we dealing with uh, with uh, with a letter or uh, a a written sermon? Maybe something like we might find uh, like book, book of Hebrews, prophecy, Torah, things like that. Help us get to know the book of Acts a little bit. What's its genre? What's its literary type? And what should that tell us about our expectations for reading the book of Acts? You mentioned miracles earlier, and maybe that's something that we can talk a little bit about, too, since you said about one-fifth of Acts records miracles. What's the genre of Acts? Help us kind of get into this. Sure. There have been different proposals. Um, the one, one proposal is that Acts is a novel, mm-hmm. but novels in antiquity were usually romances. So, you know, that's a feature that's kind of lacking in the book of Acts. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Uh, and, and normally you don't have novels about, well, usually they're not about historical characters at all, but when they are about historical characters, they're not about historical characters of the recent past. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't fit at all. But um, the person who, who mainly offered that kind of backed off a little bit toward the end. He said, I believe it's history, but it's written in a novelistic way. That is, it's written in, a, in an engaging, entertaining way. If you actually read ancient historiography, I mean, a lot of them were written that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly biographies were often written that way. Those were the ones back then, as well as today, the ones that would sell well. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, the uh, 
but what he points out is it's it's on a popular level mm -hmm. in the sense that it's uh, it's more reader friendly than than some of the other works. So I, I grant that. Uh, there are a lot of literary techniques that are are found in novels, but they were also found in historiography. Okay. There, there are some other proposals. The second leading one is probably biography, okay. which is kind of a subtype of historiography. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, quite a lot of overlap in the early empire between those. And then the, the leading proposal, by far the majority of scholars view acts as a work of historiography, mm -hmm. uh, particularly historical monograph. And, you know, Luke's gospel by itself we would see it as bi biographic, mm -hmm. as as um, two part a two part work with parallels between them, which was also common in ancient literature to parallel a couple figures. You have uh, probably a work of history, two volume work of history. The first volume being biographic, which you sometimes did have in multi volume histories, and then the second volume being more like history. Uh, usual historical monograph. And so majority of scholars take the Book of Acts to be historical monograph. Okay. So with a, um, with a historical monograph, then we should expect to have some kind of basis in real world events, right? Yeah. But I then a, you mentioned... Dissertation like that. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd... Uh, I'd, I'd I didn't plug my dissertation too seriously the other day when I was teaching a class on the historical reliability of the Gospels, although I did take it into the building or into the room with me. But no, if, if Acts is a historical monograph, like you said, uh, that has close connections with the biography of the Gospel of Luke, then what do we do when, how do historians treat Acts with all these miracles in there? Surely, right? That we can't take those seriously, or maybe should we? But let, let me say something first about the genre of ancient historiography. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's written in a somewhat different way than modern historiography. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, modern historiography developed from it. And actually, a lot of the critical methods used by modern historians were already in vogue at the time with Polybius and others. So mm -hmm. um, we, when, when you compare different works of history, ancient, ancient writers writing on the same subject, you find out that quite often, I mean, the, the, the amount of overlap shows you that they really were interested in using historical material. Mm -hmm. And not only did historians say it, but other people in antiquity in their writings, they say, this is what we expect from historians. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to make things up, you know, they can, you know, put it their own way, but the events need to be things that they have good reason to believe actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, the writing about things centuries before may be legendary, you, you know, you, you do your best, but if it's recent events, especially if eyewitnesses might still be alive, you ought to interview them, which ah, yeah. Luke actually seems to talk about in, yes. in his preface to, to the gospel. So mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, one of the key points of historiography was that it was supposed to be based on information. Uh, you know, you could, you, you also could preach through historiography. Historians didn't just write history just 
to throw information at you, they, they, there was a moral to, to their accounts that they would give. And often they would talk about that when they had detailed introductions. Right. Same with biographers. So moral, political, even theological lessons. Um, a, a number of them had theological lessons. Certainly Josephus does, but also Dio Cassius, uh, Dionysius of Halicarnassus, talking about divine providence and so on. So anyway, your listeners probably don't care about well, that. But those last two guys, uh, those last two guys are, are not Jewish or Christian, right? right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, in fact, Dionysius of Halicarnassus is writing before uh, the, the Christian, mm-hmm. you know, before there were yeah. Christians. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it's it's not unusual for a work of history uh, or historical monograph of some sort to have a theological. Um, I don't know if you want to say bias. The, the word bias tends to have a negative connotation, but you know, that the author does appear to have you know these kinds of leanings, and, and whilst while presenting a true account can still kind of bring in these leanings. The two are not mutually exclusive. Is that fair? I mean, you can look, well, maybe not, maybe not anymore, but uh, (laughs) traditionally you could look at news networks, you know, and and one may be left-leaning, one may be right-leaning, but they may, you know, they're not making up their events. They're using the same events. Social media today, I think they're making up some things. But But, you know, the uh, people approach it from different angles. So is, is the book of Acts preaching to us? Yes, mm-hmm. but you could preach in other genres. If you're preaching using history, it's supposed to be based on real information. Right, yeah. So with all that said, some people have had problems with it saying, okay, well, if it's really history, well, usually they say it really is history, but they don't, they say this doesn't make sense, all these miracles, because you can't have miracles in history because you never have eyewitness claims that miracles happen. <laughs> and so, yeah, you're laughing because we know- That seems <laughs> that pretty far-fetched, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, um, I, that's why I, I wrote that other book because I was doing a footnote on the historical reliability of Acts. You know, I was doing a footnote mm-hmm. on this objection to the miracle accounts in Acts that were like, well, you know, Obviously, this stuff can't come from eyewitnesses, so why would we trust the other stuff? Mm. And just for the footnote, I wanted to say, look, there are lots of eyewitnesses who claim these things happened. Mm -hmm. You don't have to agree with their interpretation that these things were miraculous, but you can't just ignore the fact that people claim to be eyewitnesses of this. Mm -hmm. So there was like a 2006 Pew Forum survey in which you, you end up, you know, extrapolating from this the um, percentages to the, the, the numbers comes up to hundreds of millions of people who claim to have witnessed divine healing. Now, nobody's gonna say all of those are actually things that can only be explained as sure. miracles. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, no matter what your theological framework is, nobody's gonna say all of those. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you can't just say eyewitnesses don't claim this. When you have eyewitnesses who who report things like that, mm-hmm. and, and nature miracles as well, as you know, <laughs> right. and and yeah. and uh, you know, yeah, people being raised from the dead, you know, all those things, we have lots of eyewitness sources for. We have doctors saying, I mean, the, the nature miracles 
I guess we'd need meteorologists saying, uh, yeah, yeah. For, for the medical stuff, you know, we have doctors saying, saying many of these things. We have medical documentation for many of these things. So, you know, it's, again, you can say that, yeah, you can explain it however you want to, but it's mm -hmm. disingenuous. Or mm -hmm. I think in many of the cases, it's just not aware because it's outside our discipline of New Testament per se, you know, we've got a lot of eyewitnesses for these things. Yeah. So to kind of bring folks up to speed who might uh, might not have heard you talk about this before, uh, I have uh, thankfully, um, as you were as you were writing your uh, big acts commentary, in a footnote, you were arguing with some other folks about how it is wrong to offhand dismiss the validity of eyewitness against the miracles, uh, you know, simply because they don't happen. And for those who are just listening and not watching, I'm using air quotes there. And what, what, what that small footnote eventually morphed into was two volumes worth of basically the material that you needed in order to say, hey, go look at this. You can't say that. You know, there's enough evidence to say you can't just dismiss it offhand. You don't have to agree that it is a miracle, but you cannot dismiss the claim of a miracle as you know, lying or, you know, or, or people don't claim that kind of thing. You just simply can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. A, a pretty ingenious way to do it. If, you know, it, if the research isn't out there, you just crank it out yourself and here you go. <laughs> it's definitely yeah, time it, was, it was maybe a year, no, more than a year. It was maybe a couple years of digression from the Acts commentary, but it was a fun digression. Sure. I can guarantee our listeners that we will not take years of digression here. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, we better get back to it. But uh, so, so miracles in and of themselves uh, should not be a reason for us to uh, to mistrust right. acts as a as a historical account. Let's ask. Let me ask this question: uh, Acts in, is intended to be a second volume, a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when Luke says in Luke chapter one, verses one through four, that little section known as Luke's prologue, when Luke says that he interviews eyewitnesses and servants of the word, that covers both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, that, that's somewhat debated, but in the book of Acts, he does refer, his first verse, he refers back to the preface of hmm. his gospel. Yeah. And actually the second you know, the second volume, he actually was there for some of it. Well, right. actually, that's debated. Everything's debated. In sure, Christ. yeah. Um, in, uh, you know, and usually I'll talk about here's the majority position, here are the minority positions. Uh, sometimes every position is a minority position. But, <laughs> right. um, but with, with the genre, you know, it's a majority position that it's history. In terms of the authorship, I, I would say, and actually some detractors also say this, that it's probably the majority position that the we material in the book of Acts mm -hmm. goes back to an actual eyewitness. Yeah. So that's certainly so starting in Acts chapter 16, where Luke yeah. stopped saying Paul went such and such a place to mm -hmm. saying we went to such a place. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, it leaves off in Philippi when Paul leaves Philippi, mm -hmm. and then it picks up in Philippi years later when Paul comes back to Philippi, and then continues to the end of the book of Acts, uh, which happens to be the most detailed part of the book of Acts. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One would think. Yeah, 
and and actually, uh, David David Messner at at TCU has uh, made a really strong case by by examining the prefaces of other ancient historians that when Luke's preface says that uh, Luke had uh, some translations say investigated, mm -hmm. but he says probably better translated thorough acquaintance with. And what he means by thorough acquaintance is the kind of thorough acquaintance that would be had by somebody who was actually a participant in the in the movement. Interesting. Or sometimes an eyewitness. He's not saying it has to be an eyewitness. Sure. But but the evidence does support the idea that somebody who's been participating and and knows it from an insider approach. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's consistent with the the uh, we material actually going back to an eyewitness. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the author actually being that we narrator, mm -hmm. uh, which, I mean, the style, I think the style is the same as the rest of the book of Acts for the, sure. for the material. Yeah. And if the style of writing, you know, were drastically different in yeah. those sections of uh, first person material, it might suggest that you know, Luke, instead of being there himself, has just it, it very uncreatively adopted that material and copied and pasted, for lack of a better term, copied and pasted it into his account, right? Yeah, which is strange, though, because he says there were many witnesses. He says right. that in Luke chapter one. And, you know, the, the we material is the most recent material for mm -hmm. which there should be certainly many witnesses. And yet, and, and historians usually, especially the most recent material, would be considered the most accurate, uh, most most amenable to eyewitness sources, mm. and and yet uh, Luke doesn't retain we or I anywhere else. So it kind of seems like, unless he became a really poor editor, only with this particular source, right? It's probably Luke's own. You know, it may be from a travel journal, but it's sure. probably Luke's own travel journal. Of course, is. yeah, yeah. Yeah. In another ancient historiography, that's how we we take we. Mm -hmm. The main the main objection people have to that they say, well, you know, Luke Luke doesn't write about Paul from the same perspective as Paul. Well, but keep in mind, nobody's saying Paul wrote the Book of Acts. But also, keep in mind some of those objections, like people say, well, Luke says Paul was loyal to the law, and he was a loyal Jew. And we know that Paul wasn't, but that we know that Paul wasn't goes back some decades and is no longer the prevailing view of Paul. Oh, interesting. So anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, as, especially in first century Judaism, there was, there was a considerable variety of what could be considered loyal to the law. Yes. And, um, and Paul, um, I, I think Paul could comfortably fit within that umbrella and still, be, yeah, still not, um, if not sway in his commitment to, um, you know, to the way, but uh, could also still, uh, still honor his uh, his Jewish heritage. Doctor, can you help us walk through Acts as uh, as a narrative? Um, it starts off here, chapter one, verse eight. It seems like that maybe we're given kind of a rough outline of the spread of the gospel 
Luke mentions a couple of places, a few places where the gospel is going to spread, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, kind of walk us through what, um, what are maybe some big, uh, big defining moments of the gospel's spread in, uh, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. What, um, you know, what are some, maybe two or three of the, of the really most impactful moments uh, in the first few chapters in, in the book of Acts that uh, kind of help us get a sense of what Luke is trying to show us here as far as the spread of the church goes? How many hours do we have? <laughs> I promised we weren't going to take a year's worth of digression. So, right. um, I should mention, because uh, because you raised the narrative issue first. By the way, David Bauer, another professor at our mm -hmm. seminary, has just come out with a really great narrative uh, work on the Book of Acts. But um, but I, I should I should mention that it, one of the narrative techniques that Luke uses a lot is the technique of comparison. Mm -hmm. It was used in rhetoric, but it also is very common in narrative. It's common in narrative in the Old Testament. I mean, in Acts chapter seven, we see Stephen doing it in his speech. And so there's no, there's no surprise that uh, Luke in an overarching way also can do it. You, you see it, we talked about Luke's preface, but in Luke chapter one, the gospel of Luke chapter one, we see all these parallel features between Zechariah and Mary. I mean, some of them are contrasting features, mm -hmm. but, you know, point by point, many of them, which kind of sets the tone and lets you know where Luke is going with it. Well, the book of Acts, you have uh, Peter and the Jerusalem church corresponding to uh, many things that Jesus does in the gospel. Mm -hmm. And then Paul, and in the context of the, of the diaspora mission, the Gentile mission and diaspora Jewish mission um, parallels also that. So I, 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 in my classes, I, I actually put up charts uh, in, on the PowerPoint to, to show some of those connections. But if you read, if you read Acts carefully, uh, along with the Gospel of Luke, you yeah. can see that. But just going into what you said about the, the outline, Acts 1 8 is a very asymmetric outline, but it, it does give us an outline. So it's yeah. Jerusalem, which takes us up through uh, somewhat, well, yeah, it, it takes us up through through seven, and then they're, they're scattered. And so right. Judea and Samaria, actually, the grammar of it, they're covered together. Mm -hmm. And so, so you have that in, in Acts 8 and 9. Well, 10 is still Judea as well, although you have Gentile there and in Acts 8. Um, but, but then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's where um, the Pauline and Diaspora mission especially comes in. Mm -hmm. Some key moments, you have some things that are some things that are covered three times, yeah, sometimes four times in the gospel. Mm -hmm. the, the conversion of Cornelius and his household. Yeah. So that's the first official Gentile conversion, not the first Gentile conversion, but it's the first one that impacted the Jerusalem church's approach to Gentiles. And let's take into that just for a second, because um, I wondered if you were going to mention this. You mentioned, you described Cornelius as the, his conversion as the first official gentile conversion what other gentile conversion is there and is it in the book of acts yes in acts 8 26 through 40 
we have an African court official mm -hmm. who is called a eunuch five times. Mm -hmm. So Luke is probably pretty serious about calling him a eunuch. And often those who served in Queen's courts, since this guy is the royal treasurer of the queen, were genuine eunuchs. Um, eunuchs weren't allowed to become full proselytes. Okay. So he's loyal to Jewish faith. He, he believes in the God of Israel, but he's not a full proselyte, meaning that he's still a Gentile. Right. Okay. Uh, so, you know, Acts is moving, moving forward. You have one proselyte from Antioch who's in the leadership team among the diaspora Jews in Acts chapter six. You also have diaspora Jews in Acts chapter two. But in Acts eight, we actually meet a Gentile. Mm -hmm. And Philip acts as kind of a forerunner for Peter. He, he uh, reaches this Gentile before Peter does. He preaches on the Judean coast before Peter does. He preaches in Caesarea before Peter does. I, had, but, I hadn't noticed all those before, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. F. Scott Spencer has a whole book on that. But, um, but when you, you, you take all those things, but Peter's the one who was really well known. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, um, there are some things that E.P. Sanders said that Richard Longnecker said earlier, but, <laughs> but when E.P. Sanders said it, it created a big wave. And for so, those who don't know, this is, this is New Testament scholarship. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> In kind of a nutshell. This, well, this is, no, I'd say what, this is what happens, right? Somebody will have an idea and then somebody will pick up on that. And maybe in a footnote, we'll say, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm citing this guy, but this other later person popularizes the idea and bam, there you go. And yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know that he got it just from Richard Longnecker, but, okay. uh, but I mean, there were other people who said it too, but uh, yeah, but E.P. Sanders, yeah, he really got it out there. So, mm. <laughs> um, but uh, in, in uh, full disclosure, I was his TA at Duke. So uh, just, just so, yeah. I, I, he, he was one of my mentors. So yeah. just, um, anyway, um, but in, in Acts, we see Cornelius's conversion is something that gets reported to the Jerusalem church mm -hmm. and they have to say, oh, wow, even, even the Gentiles can be saved. So it shakes up their theology a little bit because they're very conservative. How, how radical a change would that have been for them? It shouldn't have been that radical because, I mean, a lot of Jewish people believe that there were righteous Gentiles, um, you know, that, that kept maybe the basic commandments God gave to Noah or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and actually in Acts chapter 15, Peter cites the example of Cornelius. And so they come to kind of a compromise position where they say, okay, well, we can have fellowship with them as long as they keep these basic commandments, uh, which were considered mandatory for for righteous gentiles right and no idolatry no uh food offered to idols no um sex outside of marriage and no um eating uh there's a strange mention well. of blood and food yeah. yeah which goes back to genesis 9 so it was understood as gentiles have to keep this yeah but that's uh yeah, X, X 15, verse 20, and again in verse 29, they talk about that. But So it, sh it shouldn't have surprised him very much. It shouldn't have surprised him because there were, there were people who believed that. But there were also very, very conservative 
Jewish groups, especially in Judea, which is where they are headquartered, that believed that you know God was going to blast away all the Gentiles, no Gentiles allowed in the in the end time temple, and and so on. A lot of the Qumran sectarians kind of lean that way, so they're probably really conservative. And plus, Cornelius hadn't become circumcised first, right. so you know, well, he can't really be a member of the people of God, but well, yeah, yeah, okay, he can, he can be saved. But having the spirit, you know, the spirit comes on him. That's a radical thing because in the Old Testament, and, and you see this also why the disciples, when Jesus is talking about, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Acts chapter one, verses four and five. And they say, so are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because most of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about an end time outpouring of the Holy Spirit talk about it in the context of the restoration of God's people. Mm. So, you Which know, for them, for them, it's strongly implied, rightly or wrongly, but for them, strongly implied a restoration of the kingdom of Israel, right? Yes. For, for many, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so their question makes sense in their minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so because of that, they think, okay, well, the spirit was poured out on these people. How can they be, you know, how can God treat them the way he's going to treat God's people in the end time when they haven't been circumcised yet? Hmm. And, and Paul really takes off on that. And so in his letters, we find out, yeah, he believes that, that Gentiles can become members of God's people, full members of God's people, without the outward sign of circumcision, because we have what that covenant symbol ultimately pointed to, the, the fullness of the new covenant with God's spirit writing his laws in our hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm delving off into Pauline theology now. So <laughs> just, just to say in Acts, yeah. th those, are, those are also turning points in Acts, where mm -hmm. we have the outpourings of the spirit. They, they show us that God's spirit is for all people yeah. because yeah. you know, you're expecting it for Jewish people in the end time. Well, when the, when the Samaritans receive the word that, you know, that, that Philip has brought them, it says they received his message, the good news about the kingdom, the good news about Jesus Christ. They received it with joy. They, they believed, they were baptized. And so the, the uh, apostles in Jerusalem, they hear about this and they say, we, we need to go check on this. Mm -hmm. So they send Peter and John to check on them. And also to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit comes on them. And then in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit falls on Gentiles. And that blows away the people who are there, but they're witnesses that this yeah. happened because it happens like it did on the day of Pentecost. And these kind of things keep happening periodically in the book yeah. of Acts, showing us that this is, as, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, I believe, this is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I did not intend to, I didn't mention this question beforehand. So I'm not, not trying to put you on the spot or anything, but I am curious. Um, <clears throat> when the Samaritans re receive the message, right? When they receive the message, Peter and John need to go up to Samaria in order to, it, it seems like to check things out. And then they pray for them. And then the Samaritan now believers receive the Holy Spirit. Take that and set it here and then compare that with Cornelius, mm -hmm. who 
Peter, Peter won't shut up. And then the spirit gets poured out. And then Peter finally realizes, uh, oh, okay, well, um, uh, what is there to keep these guys from getting baptized? They're obviously yes. have received the Holy Spirit. And this uncircumcised Gentile has received they've, the Holy They've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, we may as well baptize them in water, too. All right, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> um, there's, uh, there's nothing stopping us here now. Okay, so why, let me ask, both groups were considered by many um, many upright Jews to be out of the covenant, uh, Samaritans and Gentiles. Mm -hmm. The Samaritans need to have Peter and John check things out, and then the Spirit comes. The Gentile in this particular situation, Cornelius and his family, doesn't need to have Peter check things out. God forces the issue by pouring out the Spirit on them immediately. May I ask why the difference? Why the different treatment with the Samaritan believers and Cornelius? It, what Luke is trying to show us seems to be fairly subtle here, or, or I might just be missing something. Well, I think um, God had some more prejudices to surmount on the part of Peter and, the, and his Jewish companions with the Gentiles than he did with the Samaritans. But uh, having, having said that, I also think and Acts 2.38 says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Trust me, I know Acts 2.38. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> but then what we, what we actually see in the narratives in Acts, you know, and, and, and theologically, that's the way it works. It's all mm -hmm. one package. Yeah. But what we see in the, the way it's worked out in the narratives in Acts, and Acts is the one place that gives us the narratives. I mean, mm -hmm. you know. 238 fits pretty well with Paul's, Paul's theology yeah. as well. So theologically, it's one way. But in the narratives, we see we can't put God in the box. Because in Acts 8 and 10, it's not nearly as tidy as that. It, 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 God does it in different ways. I mean, sometimes yeah. you have baptism first and, and then, the, then the spirit. Mm. Normally, they happen at the same time. But sometimes, you know, and I think it's to show us God isn't, isn't in our box. And also, I think we need to keep in mind what Luke's focus on the Spirit is in Acts 1.8, because in, you know, in, in some other New Testament writers, it talks about regeneration by the Spirit. I'm sure Luke believes in that. <clears throat> and, and there are, you know, Luke 3.16 and, and Acts 2.38 certainly point in that direction too. But Luke's focus in Acts 1.8 you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be witnesses. Mm -hmm. And that's why when Samaritans or Gentiles receive this, they become participants in the same mission. And you know, your sons and daughters and all those who are far off like us, we become participants in the same mission. Acts is open-ended. Um, Rome is not technically the ends of the earth. It serves the purpose for acts in a proleptic way because that's the Part of the empire in which Luke's audience lives, mm -hmm. but you know the, the uh, in terms of proleptic, same with the African court official. I mean, um, Ethiopia in Greek that was the southern ends of the earth, and these uh, these Jewish believers from every nation under heaven, in Acts chapter two verses five through thirteen or so, those are also um, an, an example of you know proleptic 
where where it's moving, but it doesn't finish it. We still have the mission today. We still need to depend on the power of the Spirit today. Yeah. And so when you know they, they become believers already in Acts 8, but in terms of experiencing, you know, the package, the theological package is there, but in terms of experiencing the power so that they'll speak for God, they'll be witnesses. Um, we also have that in in Acts 2, we have it in Acts 19 and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, sometimes yeah. it happens after a person is already a believer. Yeah, I, I do think it is, uh, I think it's absolutely fair for, uh, for Luke to show his audience that God is moving in surprising ways. Yeah, it, it, definitely true from a Jewish perspective, you know, from a perspective of somebody like Peter. You know, God is moving in surprising ways, and you know, it, it is our duty to, uh, to follow follow that, uh, that, that call. Philip uh, you know, certainly followed and, and did maybe some str- things that he might have considered strange or earlier in his life, right, by uh, mentioning, uh, by uh, preaching to this, uh, to this eunuch. When you mentioned earlier Ithiopia, that, uh, that's a, for those who are listening, that's, that would be the Greek pronunciation of the region that we would now know today as you know, roughly equivalent to Ethiopia and sub-Saharan Africa. Is, is that fair? Africa, yeah. Yeah, and we get the word Ethiopia from it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> help us kind of, uh, kind of see sort of maybe what Luke is trying to do with, um, <clears throat> with Paul in the in the latter half of the book of Acts. We follow Paul on these missionary journeys, um, <clears throat> and you mentioned that you know Paul Paul may be care. In Paul's letters, he may characterize himself, or he may present himself one way. Um, and you mentioned that maybe some folks have kind of not been very happy with Luke's presentation of Paul because it seems like Paul is maybe a little different. I feel like that could be a really technical discussion. That uh, if we can get to that, great. If if not, that's fine. But in the latter half of the book of Acts, Paul, uh, Luke is showing Paul on these missionary journeys. Um, Talk to us about what kinds of things uh, we see Paul doing in, uh, in, in these different towns, and um, m- maybe, maybe we could compare some of Paul's, um, Paul's discussions in, say, Athens with, um, you know, with some of his uh, sermon material from, um, you know, from some other place, from a more Jewish area, if, 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 oh, if we can kind of put all that together, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, earlier I mentioned that there's some things that are recounted multiple times in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned Cornelius. The other one that I really wanted to mention actually was Paul's conversion, uh, which is also his calling to reach the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gets he gets a couple shocks both at once because he's probably that was one of the <laughs> things he didn't like about the Christian movement, about Jesus' movement. But his um, <clears throat> his Coming to faith in Jesus is recounted in Acts chapter 9. He recounts it in Acts chapter 22 in Jerusalem. He recounts it be, before Festus and Agrippa the second in Acts chapter 26. So it's recounted, you know, in, in full like three times. Yeah. And uh, Barnabas recounts it also to the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts 9, or at least to Peter and James from what we get from Galatians 1. But uh, yeah, Paul does preach in different ways in different settings. He contextualizes. Yeah, 
gospel message is the same. He's going to mm -hmm. preach Jesus risen from the dead everywhere he goes. Jesus is the exalted Lord everywhere he goes. But he's going to, you know, obviously in a synagogue like in Acts 13, <laughs> he's, he's preaching from scripture, good synagogue homily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you ever wondered what it means in Luke chapter 24, where it says that Jesus explained to him all these things from the law and the prophets and the writings, and you're like, oh, Luke, why didn't you tell us more about it? I think we get it in Acts chapter 7, Acts ah, yeah. chapter 13, and mm -hmm. so on. But uh, in Acts 14, verses 15 to 17, Paul is preaching to a farming community and talks about the God who gives us rain and fruitful seasons. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31, He's, he's um, speaking, well, there are Stoics and Epicureans there who have he's been dialoguing with, and they bring him to the Areopagus, mm -hmm. which was the high court of Athens, maybe about 100 um, people on that high court. And Paul there quotes from Greek poets. And right. almost everything he says until toward the end, actually a Stoic philosopher could have agreed with. That's not to say Paul agreed with everything Stoics sure. thought, but it's to say he's he's emphasizing the common ground first mm -hmm. before he gets to the place that totally breaks with, with where they're at. Yeah. So, uh, and, and if you look in, in Paul's writings, Paul's letters, it actually it actually fits with that in terms of him him contextualizing, addressing different things with different audiences and. Uh, when, when he preaches to Gentiles, First Thessalonians 1.9 tells us that he, he told them to repent and turn from these other gods. Well, that sounds like Acts 14. Sure, sure yeah. yeah. And Acts 17, but especially Acts 14. And, you know, in terms of when he preaches to a Jewish audience, even the Romans, there's, there's a debate about how, how much of that audience might be Jewish. It seems to be a majority Gentile, but they seem to be well instructed from early Jewish roots. And there he just goes to town with Jewish material um, the way he does in a, in a, in a synagogue. Yeah. So uh, you have those. And then uh, the, the one, well, the one speech in Acts that's given to a church that's given to Christians, Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 35, in that passage, uh, Paul's even vocabulary. I mean, Luke can put things in his own words, but in that speech, it sounds even just like Paul in his letters. Mm -hmm. And of course, Luke is there to, to hear it. <clears throat> one, one scholar, Steve Walton, who's working on a, an Acts commentary, I'm eager for it to come out. Uh, that one, I think, is two volumes. But um, Steve's, Steve's commentary, uh, Steve actually has a whole monograph comparing Paul's speech there to the the uh, elders at, at, at Miletus from, from Ephesus to First Thessalonians and just one of Paul's letters. So yeah. many correspondences. So uh, there, there's, there's a lot of it. And of course, <clears throat> some of the things Paul says in Acts 17, again, Lucas, ancient historians could put things in their own words and make it as like the person as possible, but Luke also has to condense because sure. uh, he's got to get everything in one volume. Right. <clears throat> like we're trying to get everything within... <laughs> Three hours? No, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's right. Luke, Luke, so, you know, Luke can put it in his own words, but I mean, you compare it with Romans chapter one 
And some people say, well, you know, look at these differences. Well, the differences are really minor, I think, compared to the similarities. F.F. Mm. F. Bruce pointed that out in his uh, presidential address to the Society for New Testament Studies a few decades ago. But anyway, yeah. I, I uh, veer off on, on, on things, but yeah. No, I, I think it's uh, I think it's worth noting that um, you, if even from a um, from the standpoint of missiology or ecclesiology or something along those lines, but what we see Paul doing is is good missionary practice that um, that folks would uh, folks would recognize. Listeners of the podcast might uh, might remember a, a, a an interview that I did with a missionary from our uh, church tradition to Mozambique. And um, <clears throat> that interview was with him and a, a, a fellow acquaintance of ours, uh, Dr. Garrett Best, somebody who um, wrote on the book of Revelation for his, uh, for his dissertation, uh, not with you, but with another Asbury professor. But his I, I, idea I was, came I was, from... I was uh, the reader. I was... On that's the right. Yeah. His, that idea came from, uh, came from this class that you had, um, which is really funny because he, neither he nor I went into Asbury expecting to do the things that we ended up writing our dissertations on but yeah, yeah he, I um, students don't expect that you you know you've got a couple <laughs> years of coursework just. <laughs> yeah. yeah but you know let the lord do something strange in your life you know take a lesson from the book of acts don't don't put god in this box right but uh, it, it, garrett and this other missionary alan did a great job of describing how at least for alan he had done work in northern mozambique and had taken symbols uh you know some cultural symbols of power and authority and had used those to to translate and interpret symbols of power and authority in the book of revelation mm -hmm. and it seems like that is very much the kind of thing that paul is doing especially with this speech there in uh, in act 17 to athens yeah. and um yeah and it, it's just it's fascinating to me that we can look at that today um, not from a historical critical standpoint or you know exegetical, but just see, oh, this is a valid way to to reach different people groups. And and another another thing that Paul mentions in Romans 15, 19 is that everywhere he planted churches, God confirmed it with signs and wonders. Mm -hmm. That's something that is uh all over the place in the book of Acts, when we talked earlier about miracles, yeah. especially for the sake of confirming the gospel, like mm -hmm. Acts 14.3 or so says, um, in groundbreaking evangelism, including in Northern Mozambique now, um, there've been a lot of, that's, that's one of the main methods of getting people's attention for the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's true throughout the book of Acts. And I think, I think Acts provides us a mission model for today. You know, again, taking into account cultural differences, sure. but in a lot of cultures, they're so. Um, I mean that 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 gets people's attention. So, um, yeah, God yeah. does it. Yeah, it definitely get people's attention in my fellowship. That's for sure. <laughs> One more thing that I want to ask about because it is culturally, uh, yeah, twenty first century American culture is culturally relevant, but it is also a clear uh, emphasis in not just the Gospel of Luke, but also uh, the book of Acts. Uh, can you talk a little, bit about, a little bit about Luke's inclusion and his attempts to highlight uh, the roles that, uh, that women 
and a traditionally marginalized group. So it, it, in Luke's day and time, it would be, you know, uh, someone like the, the Ethiopian eunuch or some of these other folks. Can you talk to us briefly about that? And if you want to mention Luke, uh, the gospel as well, because yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of a particularly important verse uh, right around the beginning of chapter eight in Luke, um, yeah. some of the roles that women play and, uh, you know, how, how we see Luke kind of uh, giving everybody their fair shake in uh, in Luke and Acts. Yeah. Yeah, Acts, uh, sorry, Luke's gospel, kind of a programmatic statement you know, in Acts, it would probably be Acts 2, 17 and following, or well, or Acts 1, 8. Uh, there are a few different programmatic statements. But yeah, in, sure. yeah. in Luke's, in Luke's uh, gospel, one of the key ones is in um, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where you have Jesus quoting about himself in the synagogue from uh, Isaiah chapter 61 about caring for the poor and so on. Caring for the poor is a major theme throughout Luke's gospel, sacrificing your possessions to care for the poor, which we also have in Acts 2 with the outpouring of the Spirit. You know, mm. um, a lot of times we look at the, uh, the you know, the, uh, your sons and daughters will prophesy the visions, the dreams, the tongues, all these things, but, you know, they, they share their possessions in 244 and 45. Right, yeah. So that's, a, that's a, key, a key theme throughout Luke's gospel. Um, good news for the poor. And um, Jesus caring for sinners, that's, that's already in Mark, uh, but, mm -hmm. but Luke, I think, emphasizes it more. It's interesting, you have a couple places, Luke chapter 5, maybe around verse 30 to 32, and then Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, where the religious people are complaining that Jesus is eating with, with tax collectors and sinners. And then in Acts chapter 11, Around verse two, you have, uh, or two or three, you have um, the, the religious people in the Jerusalem church complaining that Peter went in and ate with uncircumcised Gentiles. You know, there's something about, you know, being religious sometimes right. where we get, we get to thinking, you know, we've been around here for a long time. We, we know all the ropes and we forget it's by grace. You know, that's how we got in. That's the only way anybody else is going to get right. in. And, you know, the, the church has started acting like some of the scribes and the Pharisees in the, in the Gospel of Luke. But mm. anyway, we, we want to, you know, pigeonhole the scribes and the Pharisees, but it's, you know, it doesn't have to do with their ethnicity. Right. Uh, yeah. The apostles were the same ethnicity. But uh, so, so we see those things. Um, in the book of Acts, it's more the ethnic dimension. You have that some, like in Luke, maybe 2.32, is it, uh, light to the Gentiles. But Luke saves most of it for a second volume. He's got a bunch of things about Samaritans already in his first volume. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chapter 9, uh, chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan. But especially, you know, the Gentile stuff is, is in volume 2. Mm -hmm. But So the Gospel of Luke might be kind of kind of paving the way yes for some of the stuff that we see yes. happen more uh, more dramatically in the book of acts is that fair in terms of gentile mission he does have the gentile centurion in luke 7 yeah. like you have in matthew 8 5 to 13 but mm -hmm. he doesn't have uh the syrophoenician woman which he would know from from mark so he you know he's he yeah he's only got so much space i guess he's saving more of it for volume two to see. but 
that's part of what Luke is doing. He's showing the continuity that yes, this movement that he's talking about, the diaspora uh, Christian movement actually is grounded in the ministry of Jesus, which was grounded in the history of Israel. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, like a continuous step forward. So Luke's gospel goes from Jerusalem and ends in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. but the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. And so it's like moving from heritage to mission, not letting go of the heritage, but the spirit keeps driving us forward into, into mission. That's a major theme of the, of the book of Acts. Yeah. And uh, that, it also has an apologetic function because of the people who were saying, well, we don't, you know, new religions, we, we're against those, those are dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, well, no, actually we are the fulfillment of the ancestral religion of the Jewish people. And so, um, and, and th these apologetic issues were really important because here the leader of your movement, Jesus, was crucified. And so, you know, the, and then the leader of the Gentile mission ends up getting executed in Rome also. Mm. So how are you going to respond to these things? The final quarter of the book of Acts deals with Paul in custody and shows it wasn't his fault. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Luke's passion narrative emphasizes it wasn't his fault. So, you know, Mark and Matthew, the centurion or the, those with him say, truly, this was the son of God. Luke zeroes in on a, uh, an implication of that. I mean, mm -hmm. if he's the son of God, then it also should lo logically follow, especially the son of the true God, that he's innocent. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so the centurion says, surely this man was, was innocent. Uh, but but dealing, dealing with women, I mean, you look at Elizabeth and Mary, and especially the contrast between Mary and, and Zechariah in chapter one of Luke. I, I've presented uh, briefly on this and um, in church settings, and it's fascinating to see sort of what a lot of folks call kind of a divine reversal where, you know, this figure, Zechariah, who should, how can, how can, how can we get pregnant? It's like, Zechariah, really, buddy? Have you not ever heard of Abraham? <laughs> Surely you should know, right? What God is asking you to do is difficult. What God is asking Mary to do is impossible, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, he's the angel Gabriel is appearing to each of them. I mean, you might want to take it seriously when an angel appears to you out of nowhere. And how, how are you going to, I mean, I mean, he's in, he's in a, he's in the holy place. Nobody else can anyway, yeah. but yeah. Um, Zechariah is an aged priest in the whole holy city. Mary is a, probably a teenage young lady mm -hmm. in, in Podunk, Nazareth, you know, place nobody's ever heard of. Well, some people have heard of it, but as in John 146, uh, what they've heard isn't all that nice. So you're from but, where? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wilmore, what's that? <laughs> We've got two stoplights. Anyway, Wilmore, Wilmore was probably like over 10 times the size of Nazareth, oh, yeah. probably like 30 times the size of Nazareth. But anyway, um, so you have. Uh, what you mentioned in Luke chapter eight, mm -hmm. uh, actually at the end of you know Luke seven thirty six to fifty, you have a woman who's a sinner. She's a woman. Uh, she's an outsider in in various ways, but she she uh, contrasting her with Simon the Pharisee. There, she comes off a lot better, being grateful, being forgiven, mm -hmm. and then and then the beginning of chapter eight, you have these women who are traveling around with Jesus, you know 
Mark doesn't tell you about him until chapter 15, verses 40 and 41, but Luke introduces him a lot earlier. Yeah. And, yeah. and when Luke tells a story about a man, he often tells a story about a woman, uh, you know, the, the, the parables in, in Luke 15, you've got a male shepherd, you've got a, a woman who loses a coin, uh, then you have a father and two sons, but um, the, the witnesses of the, of the risen Jesus, the first ones are the women, and the men don't believe him. It's very similar to what you have in Acts chapter 12, where Rhoda, a slave young, young woman, answers yeah. the door, and Peter's knocking on the door, and she, oh, it's Peter, it's Peter, and they don't believe her. And finally, they say it's, it's his ghost, which is what the men said in, in Luke 24 by Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, in the book of Acts, you have uh, the same kind of paralleling. You have Aeneas being healed of, of being bedridden uh, for, for years. Then you have uh, Tabitha being raised from the dead, mm -hmm. Tabitha Dorcas being raised from the dead. Uh, and, but, and she, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't she is, she is described as a disciple but it uses yes. the feminine term for disciple, yes. which is not found anywhere else, right? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think at least. It's a, it's a fascinating little detail. It's like, oh, oh, this, this woman was, was fairly important in, 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 her, in her community. Yeah, and, and we have some, some women, you know, very prominent women in Romans 16 and so on. Yes. But, mm -hmm. um, but in terms of Luke's thesis on this, Acts chapter 2, he's quoting from Joel. He's not making this up, <laughs> but, right. but, you know, Peter's quoting Joel, uh, adapts some of the wording to, to bring out the implications, but uh, this, this particular thing is, is in there. You have the class differences in Joel, you have the uh, age differences in Joel, young, young and old, mm -hmm. but uh, also you have your sons and your daughters will prophesy, right. your male and your female servants uh, God will pour out the Spirit on them, and you see that pattern in in Luke Acts. Mm -hmm. So uh, Simeon and Anna the prophetess, Simeon has the Spirit, and Anna the prophetess both both speak in Luke chapter two. Mm -hmm. You have Agabus the prophet, and then Philip's four virgin daughters, probably again young teenagers in yeah. Acts chapter twenty one. So Luke is driving on a point that God's Spirit empowers both men and women to speak for him mm -hmm. and given this theme of being witnesses to the to the ends of the earth i mean in the first place the witnesses are the 11 and those who were with them right. uh, and you know in luke chapter 24 then on into acts chapter one but they become paradigmatic for us because elsewhere in acts you have those those who you know testify what you've seen and heard and uh, stephen is called a witness paul is called a witness and so it's, it's the church's mission for which the spirit empowers us all. The word of the Lord in the Old Testament is usually the Torah or the message of the prophets. In the book of Acts, it's normally the gospel. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have people prophesying, literally, but there's also this more general sense in which we're all called, empowered by the spirit, to preach about Jesus, to let people know the good news about Jesus. And we can trust that, that God's spirit is working through us when we do that because yeah. that is God's message. Yeah. Jesus yeah. is risen. Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Dr. Keener, I, I was going to ask if there's one overarching message of Acts, what would it be? 
but I think you might have just given us <laughs> yeah. what it is. Jesus yeah. is risen. Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Acts, I think Acts 1.8 probably does it. Now, I had a dream one time where somebody asked me, this was when I was in Indo Indonesia, somebody asked me, um, what is the most important thing you learned in writing this commentary? And this was not a new insight with me, but it was something that was very, that made a big difference in my life, what I learned about it. And that is how, how prayer is often connected with the outpouring of the spirit. So in Luke eleven thirteen, Luke zeroes in on a particular aspect. You know, um, Matthew says, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Luke zeroes in on a particular good gift the gift of God's own presence, the gift of God himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So Luke eleven thirteen. 13, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Acts chapter one, they're praying. The spirit is poured out in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter four, they're, they're praying for, for continued boldness and that God will continue to bear witness with signs and wonders. And it says in, in 431, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, sometimes elsewhere in Acts, we see this connection between prayer and the, the gift of the Spirit. And it's not like that's the only way that happens. But I know your, your, your church tradition, uh, and in many, many church traditions, started with outpourings of the Spirit, with, with, you know, people wanting to go back, be serious with the Word, see what the Word says, mm -hmm. but also revival you know that we, we we tend to call it revival but these outpourings of the spirit in the book of acts are i think god often does those things mm -hmm. and starts movements and we we see that today in many many places around the world in groundbreaking evangelism and and so forth but uh so i think that that tells us something that we can do to um seek God for that, both personally and corporately. But ultimately, yeah, the main theme, 1-8, you'll be witnesses. Because the power of God's spirit has come to equip God's people for this mission. Amen. And this mission is to the ends of the earth. And until all peoples have heard, until the good news has been preached among all the nations, if I'm allowed to switch over to Matthew 24, 14, we still have our work cut out for us and That's we right. still need to depend on God mm -hmm. to help us to carry that out and to fulfill that mission. Dr. Kaner, it has been a treat to talk with you about the book of Acts. Uh, one last thing, how can, uh, how can folks kind of keep up with some of your work? What's a, uh, you've got a YouTube channel, right? Is there any other way where folks might be able to follow some of the things that you're doing, especially some of the stuff that's, uh, that's for broader audiences, you know, church audiences. Yeah. The YouTube channel or, craigkeener.com provided you spell it right it's not the yeah. easiest thing to spell and on the video i'll i'll spell that out on the bottom and like a little subtitle as well so folks can know um you know craigkeener.com and i'll also mention i'll put a link to that in the description and a link to your uh, youtube channel in the description as well what, what kind of things do you put on your youtube channel uh, for folks who haven't already subscribed oh okay um there very well various interviews like this I'll probably put a link to. On there yeah, if thank I, you. If but also, um, for those who can't go to seminary, but they 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 want the material. Um, 
you know, on usually an intelligible level. I mean, it's on varied levels, but uh, you don't have to know Greek to get to get most of it. I have like maybe a hundred hours of lectures, <clears throat> and most of them are not talking head videos. I mean, there are a few of those, but um, <laughs> um, and and the older ones, the the video quality isn't as good as the newer ones, obviously. But um, but I do have PowerPoint. And the, the newer ones on Mark, I think the quality is really good. Right. So yeah. you can get the whole gospel of Mark. Uh, with the older ones, you have the whole gospel of Matthew, the whole gospel, uh, the whole book of Acts. Um, Romans is there, 16 hours in Romans. No, 17 hours in Romans. Oh, I was going to say 16 hours. That's, uh, yeah, that's really back. nicely, uh, <laughs> rightly divided here. Yeah. So things, things like that are probably the most important things. Yeah, and then on the on the website there are videos, and you can you can actually search by book to find to find them. Also, because um, there's a, a pull down menu, mm -hmm. and also uh, Bible studies, mostly popular level, not not mostly scholarly. Yeah, um, those are mostly in my in my books, and on Saturdays, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this, but I have. For hundreds of weeks, I've had uh, cartoons, silly cartoons, <laughs> That's just, right. just, to, yeah. just as filler because I can't write Bible studies fast enough. So <laughs> I'm busy writing the books. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and pop, popular level, well, semi-popular level, um, there's the Bible background commentary. There is... Yes. Um, the book Impossible Love, and then I also did the New Testament notes. John Walton did the Old Testament notes for the uh, Zondervan's Cultural Background Study Bible. Mm -hmm. So th there are there are things. Most of my, you know, like the the Big Acts commentary is for scholars. Uh, it's a it's a technical commentary yeah. where you talk about you know, yeah, not just Greek language, but um, you know some of the matters that we were talking about earlier about you know, acts as a historiographical monograph or history historical monograph and all that stuff yeah and for those who who feel comfortable wading into that by all means yeah but the youtube channel is definitely a useful place um also just youtube in general especially if if you search craig keener seven minute seminary that's published by a different group but uh, those are pretty high quality and in, in terms of content and uh, video production and uh, i I have actually recommended some of those to church members before who have wanted to ask a particular issue. And I know that you've got some good stuff on that. Some of your colleagues do videos with seven minute seminary as well. Mm -hmm. um, you can also find various chapel presentations. I, I think you, a friend of mine sent me one that you did at Biola uh, mm -hmm. a, a couple of years ago. He's like, Hey, check out minute such and such. So I go over there and you know, you, you mentioned this, particular story that you alluded to earlier in miracles today that again we're just going to let you buy the book and uh, find <laughs> find out why it's, i get a shout out expensive book yeah um but yeah dr keener uh it, it's been a treat to be able to talk with you about the book of acts i, I really appreciate you giving us some time this evening uh thank you so much for um for uh, yeah, allowing us to pick your brain about some of these things and uh, <laughs> i hope you i hope you're licensed in neurosurgery but uh, watch out. Uh, I, I'm an expert on uh, on uh, viruses and immunology these days. Oh, good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we anyway. need people who can do that. That's we, we need people who actually can do that and not just yeah, think they can. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Dr. Keener, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, take care, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you sometime later. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you. Very much. God bless. Bye.